That's the sound of journalism. Cutting deeper and deeper into climate change. Um, I think we should color first because... Yeah. It's also the sound of my wife and four-year-old daughter making me a sign that reads, How about this weather? I'm recording a podcast about climate change. Very good. <laughs> if you're listening to that podcast, thank you, by the way, and welcome. What color do you think people like to look at? Pink. So I took this beautiful piece of colored computer paper mounted on old cardboard and stood outside my local library, hoping to talk to my neighbors on what they thought about climate change. Why? Well, climate change seems to be something I hear a lot about, but I don't talk a lot about. So I wanted to see what people had to say. I had some good conversations. But here's what stood out. Challenge me. What, what should, I'm 41. What should my generation do? Well, you should... Ah, God, that's a, that's a hard question. I don't know what you guys can do. <laughs> <laughs> we're like the useless... Yeah. There's the greatest yeah. generation, we're like the useless generation. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I was joking, but I do feel kind of useless. I mean, the only thing my generation has really accomplished was giving Weird Al Yankovic a career. But feeling useless is no excuse. I think there's still something I can do. And I think the best way to engage a problem is to understand it. So here we go. In this episode, we're going to talk about climate change. What it is, how it affects things like national security, the oceans, and our food supply. We'll even talk about the planet Venus. What a mess! Welcome to Funny Atmosphere. I'm Jeremiah Murphy. And here I am talking to Justin Bauman, a coral reef researcher at UNC Chapel Hill. A bunch of people are seeing drought, a bunch of people are seeing fire, well, obviously our wildfires and hurricanes are going crazy, and, and we are seeing sea level rise, and our major cities are at risk, you know, we're losing, we're, we're going to lose Venice, someplace that's like amazing. I've never seen it. I'm, I'm not sure I'm ever going to see it. <laughs> it might be gone. Uh, you know, and there's, there's Miami to think about, and New York City, and Boston, and a lot of our, we love coastal cities. Yeah, I like what you said about coastal cities being like the cool. I mean, I'd rather be in New York than Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm from Ohio, so Cleveland's fine. But but yeah, I get it. And Cleveland is a coastal city. They're on the Great Lakes. <laughs> Whoops. Well, there's a quick reporter lesson. Always pre-interview your sources and ask them where they're from. But climate change sounds serious. I wonder why nobody's really done anything about it yet. Here's astronomer and astrophysicist Carl Sagan in 1985. Uh... Because the effects occupy more than a human generation, there is a uh, tendency to uh, say that they uh, are not our problem. I wonder, even if we all agreed that climate change was our problem, could we stop it? If we stopped emitting tomorrow, for 100 or 200 more years, we'd still be feeling the effects of what we did yesterday. Yikes. When Bauman says emitting, he's talking about emitting greenhouse gases, something we'll explain shortly. So. I'd like to break down climate change to its simplest terms. I lived in Los Angeles for a few years. I see climate change as kind of like a California wedding. Way too many cars, the beach will never be the same, and it can divide families. I was going to ask you, am I expected to say anything funny for you? <laughs> uh, do you know any good jokes? So here's Jason West, a professor and researcher at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's going to explain how climate change works in like three seconds. It's the same way a blanket works. And we don't question how a blanket works. That's really it. Climate change is about trapping heat. But 
I do question how a blanket works. We bought this $60 weighted blanket to help my daughter nap and no naps. But if you want to take a nap now, you can leave with some solid science. Wes just summed it up. Climate change is like a blanket. But if you want to go deeper under the covers, let's define three terms. Greenhouse effect, global warming, and climate change. Here again is the master of the turtleneck and corduroy blazer, Carl Sagan. I'd like to stress that the greenhouse effect makes life on Earth possible. If there were not a greenhouse effect, the temperature would, as I say, be uh, 30 centigrade degrees or so colder, and that's well below the freezing point of water everywhere on the planet. Uh, the oceans would be solid after a while. Uh, a little greenhouse effect is a good thing. So the greenhouse effect isn't all bad. It keeps the Earth nice and comfy. But how does it work? Well, it involves... Um, uh, I should really have an expert describe the process. Here's famous science communicator, environmental expert, and former president of the United States, George W. Bush. Greenhouse gases trap heat and thus warm the Earth because they prevent a significant portion of infrared radiation from escaping into space. Here's Bauman again, breaking down the greenhouse effect and putting Bush's infrared radiation in simple terms for us common folk. Bauman, you have 30 seconds, go! Several different kinds of molecule that are, that are uh, greenhouse gases. And the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere create a layer, and that layer traps heat. So basically, like, light passes through the layer, that light contains heat, that light reflects off of or heats a surface, that heat then reflects off of the Earth, and then is trapped by our gas like blanket atmosphere greenhouse gas layer. That warms the planet to the point where we can survive. So it, it all makes sense. The greenhouse effect traps heat from our sun in our atmosphere. This is a natural process. A cloud, water vapor, is a greenhouse gas. Without the greenhouse effect, Earth would be too cold for human life. The greenhouse effect is like Ben and Jerry's. Without it, we wouldn't be able to live. In fact, there might have been a greenhouse effect on other planets, such as Venus. Here's Paul Byrne, planetary geologist at North Carolina State University. Okay, so the short answer is we don't know. But we have pretty well thought out models that explain what we think we're seeing on Venus today. So Venus is this fascinating world. And it's fascinating because it is presumably made of the same stuff Earth is made of. It's almost the same size. It's almost the same mass. So presumably, in all the meaningful ways, it's the same as Earth. Yet it looks nothing like Earth. Oh, it's like the evil Earth. Or is Earth the evil Venus? The atmospheric pressure at the surface of Venus is about 90 bars. That's about the equivalent of a kilometer under the ocean. And the temperature at the surface of Venus is self-cleaning oven, right? wow. but 470 degrees Celsius. So it's more or less like visiting Phoenix, Arizona. There is a layer of cloud that goes from about 50 kilometers over the, over the surface, so about 30 miles, to 75 kilometers. And these clouds are mainly made of sulfuric acid, so they will melt you. But melting into a cloud sounds so relaxing. And one of the things that underpins our current understanding of Venus, which I have to emphasize here, is not very good, because we just don't know. But we think that Venus might have experienced a runaway greenhouse effect, where suddenly your climate just gets so hot that you lose all your surface water completely. So Venus goes from possibly an Earth-like planet to this planet that's much too hot, extremely inhospitable to life, and has no oceans. Could something like that happen to Earth? 
most of the work that I've come across, that I've looked at, and most of the stuff that I'm aware of in terms of where our understanding of this, say with the you know, 1.5 degrees Celsius, the 2 degrees Celsius you know, thresholds we're trying to minimize and trying not to hit that 2 degree. As far as I know, none of those models predict that we will enter a runaway greenhouse effect. I think the risk of that happening, of us turning into Venus in the near term, is low. We are already facing enormous ecological disaster and, and, and human-scale disaster, even hitting 2 Celsius. Um, Venus probably would have gone up to several tens of degrees. To me, the runaway greenhouse effect sounds like a sauna that just keeps on getting hotter and hotter, except you don't have to wrap a towel around yourself to maintain modesty because everyone's dead. In the meantime, Earth's greenhouse effect is keeping it warm enough for us to enjoy the planet, looking at our phones and talking about ourselves in great detail. But like trying to be a journalism grad student and a sleep-deprived parent, it's a delicate balance. Carl Sagan? Uh, too much or too little greenhouse effect can mean too high or too low uh, a temperature. And here we are pouring enormous quantities of uh, CO2 and these other gases into the atmosphere every year with hardly any concern about its long-term and global consequences. That was Sagan from 1985 again during a hearing in Congress. And he just bumped the show into our next topic, global warming. Global warming describes how humans have contributed to the greenhouse effect. When we burn coal and oil to power our homes and cars, we release greenhouse gases. Yeah, they're basically a big blanket, and like we keep adding blankets, even though it's too hot. <laughs> kind, of, kind of like a concerned parent. Yeah, yeah, it is very much like a concerned parent, and we just don't know any better. But we do know better now, so we need to like take some blankets off. One of these blankets, or greenhouse gases, is carbon dioxide, CO2. Natural processes can add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But humans have added so much CO2 with our love of fossil fuels, we're doing it a lot faster. Yeah, it's hundreds of thousands of years versus like a hundred or hundreds of years. So it's an order of magnitude, as we say in science. So like if you multiply the amount of years by 10, that's the amount of years that's natural. So since the 1880s, we've gotten a huge increase in CO2, which has led to uh, between a degree and a degree and a half of, of air warming. Uh, in, in the modern era, and that would usually take quite a lot longer. Ten times longer-ish. Ten times longer-ish? Sounds like my timeline for completing this podcast. If you look at a graph of the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere over, say, 800,000 years, you'd see an interesting picture. The line goes up and down. There are some bumps. But when you hit around 1880, when we started burning coal and oil during the Industrial Revolution, when machines made our lives easier... When you hit 1880, CO2 spikes. It shoots straight up. If the graph of CO2 in our atmosphere were a song, it would probably be Hey Jude. Most of the song is the past 800,000 years. You know, some light, quiet. La, 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 la. When we hit the Industrial Revolution, we get Paul McCartney on full freakout. <laughs> this screaming increase of CO2 in the atmosphere traps more heat. It's like adding blankets. The Earth is getting warmer. That's global warming. And with all the CO2 we keep releasing, climate change is like the song Hey Jude in another way. It seems like it will never end. Here's my father-in-law, Steve Sippel. He spent 30 years as a meteorologist for the National Weather Service. He can't wait to talk about this stuff. But uh, if you were to average the various um, hemispheres and various continents, uh, you, you'll see a trend that's warmer and warmer. So if it's cold outside where you are, 
Global warming is still happening. These are global average temperatures. Yes, I'm speaking to you, Senator Inhofe. You might remember him. He's the guy who brought a snowball into Congress to disprove global warming. That 2014 has been the warmest year on record. I asked the chair, you know what this is? It's a snowball. And that's just from outside here. So it's very, very cold out, very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. Mm -hmm. It's called Um, global warming, not global warm, global average temperatures. And this, I promise, is my last comical metaphor. The greenhouse effect is like the interest on a credit card. And global warming is like the balance. Sure, it's fun charging comic books, improv classes, and Ben and Jerry's on your Southwest City card. But there are some long-term implications, my friend. And does anybody want to buy some Fantastic Fours? The long-term implications of global warming is the next topic, climate change. First, let's look at the relationship between climate and weather. Back to my father-in-law, retired meteorologist Steve Sippel. Well, the day-by-day changes in uh, temperature and humidity uh, and even the weekly uh, changes uh, in those parameters, uh, simply what we call the weather. While the uh, climate uh, is made up of many years or decades of weather records. Here's Katie Mulvaney, a Ph.D. student at UNC Chapel Hill. And so the climate is the pattern of weather that you see in different seasons in a place over a long period of time. So it's like asking your grandparents or your parents, what was the summer like in North Carolina when you were growing up as a kid? Or what was the winter like? Here's Jennifer Francis from the Woods Hole Institute testifying before Congress. Think of climate as your personality and weather as your mood on any given day. I like that. Moods and personalities. You know, maybe if we calm down our own moods and personalities, we can calm down the climate. Yeah, I really don't know what I'm talking about. Here's Katie Mulvaney again. And there's lots of different things that affect the climate um, from where you are on the earth, whether you're north or south, uh, close to the equator, um, whether you're near an ocean and how the ocean interacts with the atmosphere, and also lots of other things that are just kind of moving around in our atmosphere. Lots of things move around in the sky. Wind, clouds, my dreams of sailing a yacht, my dreams of sleeping eight consecutive hours, my dreams of ending this podcast. Speaking of which... Here's my last segment called Experts with No Jokes, featuring retired Lieutenant Commander Oliver Layton Barrett, Kat Chamberlain, a PhD student at Harvard who studies plants, and Justin Bauman. Yeah, we're seeing temperatures that are between a half a degree and a degree warmer than they have been on average in most places in the ocean. Um, The warming is worse at the poles, especially in the water, Um, but it's still bad enough in the tropics where it's actually the least bad. Uh, it's still bad enough in the tropics that it's causing corals to be stressed. They can only adapt to warming like 0.1 degree every decade or so, and the warming is happening quite a bit faster than that. So it's not necessarily the warming that's killing the corals, it's the speed of the warming. Coral reefs actually support most of the fish that eventually grow up to be big fish that we eat. So about a third of the world relies on protein sources that come directly from coral reefs. So as corals decline and diversity declines and reefs die, so do the fish and all the other invertebrates that live there, the crabs, the lobsters, and then we have less food. Here's retired Lieutenant Commander Oliver Layton Barrett. 
the first thing you have to do, we have to do, is expand our understanding of the term national security. Now, the traditional understanding of national security is, hey, I got to protect my borders from invading armies. But a more up-to-date understanding and a more accurate understanding of national security uh, would involve the appreciation of the need for food security and water security and human security in general. Because if you don't have food security, you don't have water, you don't have a nation, you don't have national security. Barrett also says that sea level rise is a threat. Rising ocean water can cause salt water to mix with freshwater supplies in the ground. This is called saltwater intrusion. And I tell you what, I don't like drinking salt water, and crops don't grow with salt water. And our last expert, Kat Chamberlain, PhD student at Harvard University. I think the, the rate we're heading, we're definitely going to see a decrease in crops. And there's going to be a decrease in the selection that we see at the grocery store. But if we can change and we can start using different species and different plants and adapt, just like these invasive plants are, then then maybe we can kind of fight it. I asked Chamberlain if the increase in CO2 in the atmosphere could help plants. I remember from science class that plants use CO2. With more CO2, we're seeing more growth initially. But then these plants are being inhibited with growth by the shift in temperature. So they can only really maximally grow at a specific temperature and in a specific amount of CO2. These apple trees are bursting bud, they're showing their leaves, they're starting to flower, and they're getting hit by these really extreme freezing events just because they're starting to flower too soon in the spring. Um, and that can affect our, our apple crop as well. So there's shifts all over the world that are happening. I asked Chamberlain how climate change might affect wine crops. You know, a lot of people are still trying to stay true to their Pinot Noirs and their Chardonnays. But over time, we might not have those anymore and might have something totally wonky called something totally different, you know. Um, And then we're all drinking the same type of wine. We might just have rosés in the future. You know, I don't know. (laughs) We're all having brunch. (laughs) Yeah, we're all having brunch.